You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Push the button. It's been pushed. 355. Negative 355, Kirk. Way to go. We're we're, we're approaching negative 4. Unbelievable! It's like Y2K. I don't know what's going to happen when we hit that number. Hmm. Do you remember where I, oh, Y2K? I forget about Y2K. It's been a couple centuries or wait, decades since I've thought about Y2K. Do you remember where you were on Y2K? Oh, yeah. I remember exactly where I was and held holding my breath. Where were you? Yeah, I was in. Uh, I was at my neighborhood. We have it. We growing up, we had a neighborhood block party on big occasions and always on New Year's. So they'd put. Like uh, barricades up at the end of the streets, and then have a big potluck dinner, like a pig roast, and all the kids would just run yard to yard, just tearing it up and having a great New Year's. We'd listen to Kiss FM's top one hundred and three point seven songs of the day or the the year countdown. What's the number one song going to be? Winter block party in Wisconsin. In the dark. Yep. Yeah. We we had little bonfires in every out in the street and in the front of the yards and it was awesome so what happened did did all the lights go out and the machines started working on their own and eating people or what happened in your neighborhood nothing nothing i was probably in like i'd want to say around sixth grade what would that be 2000 i was i'd have been 13 maybe i was a little older than that the 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 trendy thing all the kids were like i'm gonna go wait by the atms because they're gonna start spitting out (laughs) No one, no one executed that plan super well. No, didn't come. I was in a, a grocery store buying you? a frozen pizza with my buddy Luke, and it struck midnight. And we looked around; all the lights were still on. There weren't fires in the streets. There wasn't like birds in flocks attacking the civilians. I was like, "All right, we're gonna be all right." So it was, it was anticlimactic. I was a senior in high school. No, junior in high school. Um, okay, didn't plan on talking about Y two K. What what did you ha- what you were gonna you were gonna say something probably other than that and then we got on a a derailment early. I don't know. Uh no, you want me to fill you want me to fill some space here, Bracken? I can fill some space. You want to fill her up. Uh only because I have this box sitting right next to me. Um because we sorted through all of our product inventory and we have like a handful of extra smalls left. And maybe like one or two smalls and one or two mediums. Uh, so go on the website and snag them for 12 bucks um, if you can. And extra smalls, DM me if you still want some extra smalls. Uh, I got a handful of those left in those sizes. And then it's all gone. It's all gone. And this is what happens, guys. When you buy all of our inventory, then I go make new colors of cool shirts. And you can collect them all. But until this is all gone... I hold on pulling the trigger on that. So message me for extra smalls or go on the website, see what we got left in your size, smaller, medium. I think we're out large and above. But um, I just wanted to chat this out with you real quick. It's It's been – I've been meaning to ask you about it off mic, but since we're on mic, like, no better time than now uh, before we hop into today. Uh, what do you think about the uh, championship in track and field, the championship – qualifier rounds now going away from time qualifiers out of heats to finals and what i mean by that folks listening that probably i probably delivered that a little confusing is let's say there's a 1500 meter final 
there will be semifinals or quarterfinals to make the final. So you don't just show up and run one 1,500 meters. If you're going to contend for the win or a podium, you have to get through rounds, and then they get the best, let's say, eight in the finals. So it's a process. It can be a multi-day process. And the typical format often was they will take the fastest two from each qualifying heat and then take the next X amount of fastest times. So if you got in a fast heat, everybody in your heat qualified, and then the next heat might be slow and tactical, and the only to qualify to finals might be the two that, that the first two, because the first two are auto, and then nobody else gets in, even though some of the best in the, the field could get left out. So they made the change this year where there is no time qualifiers. They're just going off of placement in heats. So the the argument is it brings racing back, right? Like it doesn't bring luck of the draw. It's like it's emphasis on racing, not on times. And I must say that I watch watching people run fast and chasing records and times is fun, but it is only a fraction of the fun of watching people race. And I know that may sound cloudy to you listening, like isn't racing and running fast the same thing? Nope. It is not because when you're as good as these people are, tactics come into play and holding back and surging and kicking to the line and timing everything perfect down to the meter to cross the finish line exactly where you intend matters. And so I was actually very happy to see that change made because it just highlights the racing side instead of the time chasing side. And so I think it's pretty cool and I think they're implementing it. I forget what circuit or what it was. Um, you saw this news, I assume? Yeah, this is World Athletics. World so Athletics. This is all track and field. Right. Starting at the next World Championship, this will be implemented for championships and Olympics going forward after love it. 2023, I think. Love it. I really love it, and it really worries me at the same time. It's the kind of thing that we're going to have to see how it plays out, because I like it for the reasons you say. It, turn, it turns it back into racing, and so in the prelims, it sets upsets up to happen. When it's just off time... The studs can just go out faster, and if you get dragged along, you get through. But if you can't run with them, you just don't make the final. And so it ensures the best make the final, and then the final is always very tactical, which I like. However, this sets up the opportunity for upsets to occur, which part of me loves and part of me doesn't want to see until the final. I want to see all the best people make the final. And the best of everyone go at it. In theory, the best should be making the final. Well, they should, except what if there are three prelims and one of them has five of the eight best and the other two have one and two each. Some of those five can't make the final anymore because there isn't the extra time qualifier. Only two or three can make it through. And so you could have the top five ranked in the world and two are out because they got a bad luck of the draw in the prelim. That's the only thing that worries me is... They could run really fast and all do really well and take fifth and be head and shoulders over everyone else in the field in the other heats and not get through. So it it has the potential to dilute the final, but it also has the flip side of that coin is it creates these upset storylines. I know the fan in me wants to see the best in the final and then let's watch chaos happen. And the other part of the fan in me says, I want to see chaos from the start. I want to see racing. So someone's going to get screwed with seeding. It's going to make seeding of the races much more important. That I agree with. And I'll be curious how they do that. Obviously, you're going to have to time seed initially and then dive, 
you know, diversify the fastest to slowest times evenly amongst the heats. But then I wonder after that, because if they're not doing a time-based system, then I wonder if they go placements, like first place in the first three heats are all divided. Second, it's sure they're just evenly divided amongst themselves and, and shuffled. I'd just be very curious. It'll be, I don't know. All I know is it makes me want to watch more than less. I'd watch either way. But for me as a fan, uh, track and field isn't the most appealing to most common folk. Uh, to watch, right? Unless you're invested in the sport on like a personal level. And so not that this is going to change anything drastically that way, but I think it's just, it's maybe moving the right direction for the lay person to watch it and enjoy it instead of watching somebody always like out in front of the field in a, in a conga line of runners hanging on. That's not quite as much fun. To me, what it changes the most is which races you tune in for. Even now, when I go back, like we have Peacock, and so we have, um, you and I both have it. So we have all these track races that are just sitting there, championships, all the Diamond League. But I generally fast forward through the prelims of the 1500. Right. Because I don't care, because it doesn't matter. The best are going to get through to the final, and then you watch the final. And no one's trying hard, and it doesn't matter as much. Not no one. The best people don't try very hard. Now you'll have to tune in to the prelims. Because you may not see your favorites in the final and you want to see how they get knocked out or how they qualify through. So it's going to make the prelims instantly must see TV and it may dilute the final slightly. But if you have five races and only one was worth watching, now it makes five worth watching. To me, I think it's probably a net gain, but uh, we'll see. I have to see how it plays out. Well, I'm checking the I like it box. So I just thought I'd get your take on it. I figured you'd have a little different angle, which I do understand what you're saying. And I th- you're absolutely right that it will lead to upsets. But it also leads to uh, the Matthew Centrowitz of uh, of racing come through once in a while. And Matthew Centrowitz mm-hmm. won the slowest 1,500 meters in Olympic history in like 3.59, which is pedestrian people run 20 seconds faster to win olympic titles and it allowed somebody like him to like a a racing style of race um so i don't know maybe it leads a little bit more of that i'd love to see you know what what well this the the coolest part about that race is he beat like three olympic champs and nine world champs in it it was the most stacked final we've seen in decades everyone was in it and he led from the gun yeah So would that have been as cool and as impactful if three of the people weren't in it or five of them weren't like he, it was everyone. It was a who's who of the last decade was all in that and he beat them all. So that's the only hesitation I have is if some of them were in the same prelim and just couldn't get through, it would have dulled his accomplishments slightly, but he took down everyone in the Olympic final. This may be the last time an Olympic final has like one through 12 ranked milers in the world all in the final maybe they get through but i don't know either way you are right it makes prelims exciting did they and let's we can move on from this but i didn't read the the finer print is this going all the way up to the 5k because they usually don't have prelims in the 10 that's going to be 1500 and up so it's oh it's so they're still doing it for the eight and down eight and down and that was one of the criticisms people want to see it in the eight as well oh i would love that would be fun oh well i'll take that would be must watch tv that would be uh interesting okay i can see how it wouldn't make sense for the four you're staying in your own lane it's hard to discrepant where you are in the in the grouping 
based on the stagger and all that, but I'd say eight and up. Okay. Um, all right. What are we doing here today, Brackenstein, besides drinking fight milk and uh, milk. chatting with each other? Q&A, baby. We got some good questions in the bank, and it is time to blow through them. Q&A. We, you know, we used to push these off, and we would have so many questions to get to that they'd just get pushed to the next Q&A and back and back, and we never got caught up. And then what was it? Maybe six or four months ago, we're like, we're clearing it out. We did two Q&As back to back, I think, and cleared our cash. And now our number one goal is to stay on top of them because one, it causes us to talk about topics that aren't top of mind for us personally, which is how we guide our training Tuesdays. And then two, it allows questions to get answered in a more timely fashion. And we are working on that. And I think we've done a better job. I think we did our last Q&A six weeks ago, and we have a, a few of them that I think are worth dissecting. So that's why we're coming at you today with another Q&A. Coming in hot. And Kirk, can I kick it off? I want to set the tone. Paul, oh, please. Yes, please. Shoot question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Out of left field. You button hooked me, Bracken. I, uh, I didn't know you were going to button hook me. I sucked you right in and I laid it down. Yeah. All right. Shoe question. Trail shoes. Why do they matter? Why are they different? Do I need to use them? Is there any other context to this? Nope. That's it. Why do they matter? I already turned it off now. Why, why are they different and do I need to use them? Okay. Well, do you want me to start or are you just, are you just growling at the start line, just ready to take off? Listen, you, you cannot detract my enthusiasm for these questions. So go ahead, pour out your knowledge and I'm going to have something to say no matter what. All right. Well, uh, trail shoes indeed do matter. Um, if you're a road runner, no need, literally no need. If you start running on pea gravel and other surfaces, you're going to want to start to consider. And then of course, real trails there's a couple of differences that i will point out between like a trail and a road shoe and why trail shoes matter the obvious is going to be the tread on the bottom of your shoes it's going to be more aggressive lugging with deeper depths which is going to allow you to grab the surface on top of that there's going to be a different style of tread as to when you are running downhill, the tread on the heel of a uh, trail shoe is going to be reversed in order to grab with a braking effect. You won't see that on a road shoe. You're not going to see an aggressive reverse type lug to give you stability going downhill, which people often forget about. So not only do you have lugs and more aggressive um, gripping to the surface, you're going to have like a reverse tread on the heel typically in order to help grip on the downhills, where in road shoes, you're going to start falling on your butt so that's the first thing, right? The obvious, right? But most people don't look at the bottom of their trail mm -hmm. shoes. A lot of, not all trail shoes, but a lot of them have these reverse style heels on them in order to sink into the Is ground. Sure what we're talking about? Um, sure. Maybe this will make the running public cut, Ian Floyd. All right. So... What we're talking about here is in the front of this, you can see that the lugs are angled one direction so that when you come back and you toe off here, these back parts are grabbing into the ground. On the back of the heel, where you would break going downhill or chop your feet, it's angled the other way so it catches in reverse and grips the ground. So that's what Kirk's talking about there. Thank you, Bracken. Whereas, I take the grippiest, the grippiest road shoe probably known to man, the RC Elite 1, you have these like triangular chevrons up front and you can see there is a little bit of depth to them. So they provide traction on almost any surface and you look at the heel and there's just hardened smooth rubber. 
It's just to absorb some running and not wear through because they don't care about traction. You're only towing off on the road. You're not ever using your heels for traction. It's just as dampening. So that's what he's talking about with how the traction matters. Nice demo there, man. That was necessary. That's also a sexy shoe right there. In my opinion, it's one of the best looking shoes of all time. That's a good looking shoe. Um, the other thing I was just going to follow up with, like I'm just kind of getting right to the details, and then you can you can take this whatever direction you want because I could as well. Um, is then the type of rubber used on the bottom? It's it varies in all types of shoes: road shoes, trail shoes, street shoes, really everything. Um, but then you have like contact. I don't know what you would call it, but contact stickiness would not be a technical term, but ability for the actual material to grab as well. On a trail shoe, they're going to put a high emphasis, often some brands do, some don't, a high emphasis on like tackiness. Like you step on a wet rock in a road shoe and your foot's going to slip off. Whereas you step on a wet rock in the right trail shoe and somehow that grip is going to magically hold you there a bit better than like another shoe. Mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. For example, hokas are slick. They're meant to bite into the the earth, but if you hit like a, a wet wood bridge, you might end up on your butt. Whereas in like an Innovate or a VJ shoe or some other brands or models, you're going to grab that wood bridge and be like, ain't no thing. So there is some discrepancy there. But like those are going to be the two like technical differences between like what's actually on the bottom of the shoe as far as grip goes would be those two things jump out at me right away as major differences and why you need them. And confidence is everything when you're running trails. Like if you don't have confidence where you're putting your shoe and time or speed matters, um, it's going to severely impact your ability to run your best especially on very technical terrain so yeah yeah it's a great jumping off point and then i'll just move up from there the uppers are different on trail shoes because the trail shoes need lateral stability they have to be able to move with your foot a little bit when you encounter rocks roots technical terrain so that you don't just tip over the side but they also need to lock your foot in so your foot's not sliding out of the shoe when you plant on a switchback or hit a rock. You can't have your foot roll over the top of your shoe, which is what you would find if you didn't have stability in the shoe. So if we take a look back at the speed goat here, you can see these these stripes running here. These are actual overlays applied to the shoe, and they're like a, a truss system. They lock your foot down, and when you go to push against them, they just provide extra stability inside and out. If you look even closer, if you tilt the shoe, um, you're going to see the lace openings. I don't think you have shoelaces in those right now for some reason. No, I took the shoelaces out. But the lace openings are actually are are actually in those cinch systems or those trusses, as you call it. You can see mm-hmm. that they're there to actually good point. Yeah, grab in and like hold onto the structure support, so your foot doesn't get as let much lateral shifting. So that is that is what the the trail system has upper is that it locks your foot in place more. In a road shoe, you care about have, being able to spread your feet a little bit and your heel locked down. Because the only direction you're going is forward. And so the only real stress point on the shoe is at toe-off. Can your heel slide up out of the shoe or not? And so heel lockdown is all that really matters. And it only matters in an up-down sense. In trail shoes, things matter laterally. And so the uppers have the ability to cage your foot a little bit more. And this is where the breakdown of trail shoes happen. It either has poor lug system, bad rubber compound that doesn't work in certain situations, or the upper lockdown 
is lacking. Those are the three biggest complaints people have with trail shoes if they don't get that mixture correct. However, what all of this adds up to, more rubber, deeper lugs, more overlays up on the shoe is a heavier shoe. So that's the trade-off oftentimes is you get more security and you lose some of the lightweight and some of the pep in the shoe. So that's the trade-off. But I will say that the trail shoes matter the more the trail becomes a trail. Mm -hmm. When I lived out in Colorado, I did the first two years of training almost exclusively in these shoes right here, Nike Lunar Racers. They have zero tread on the bottom, but I was running on hard pack dirt or rock. That's all Colorado is. Didn't need tread 90% of the time. And the upper system, does that look familiar? You've got this fly wire here that locks down the upper. So it actually has phenomenal foot lockdown and lateral stability to the point where I've played basketball in that shoe messing around and realized I can play basketball in this. It has great foot lockdown. So I was doing 60, 70 miles a week in the Lunar Racer on Colorado trails because I didn't need anything else. My first pair of Hoka's out there that I ran trails in was the Clifton, not the Challenger. Challenger was my second pair. The Clifton was a road shoe with absolutely no tread on it. Most of it was exposed foam on the bottom. And it did great in Colorado because I didn't need it. Then I start running mud or technical terrain, loose rock, and suddenly traction matters again. So, no, you don't even actually need it. Uh, for years, some, one of the most popular trail racers for like 5K, 10K, half marathon trails was the Adidas Adios. It was a racing flat that people loved for the trails. So, no, you don't need trail shoes. But when you're running in your running shoes and think, I can't turn fast, I am going to roll my ankle, this feels really sketchy, that's the sign that it's time to go trail shoe. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes in the road shoe, another difference is this isn't always, and you can find both in road and trail shoes is the stack height difference. Like you're going to find a road mm -hmm. shoe has no problem layering in stack height on a shoe if it makes it faster or better. Whereas on the trails, a lot of the shoes, especially the racers are going to keep you lower to the ground and surface. So it's going to have a smaller stack height, your ability to be agile around turns. And it's just going to be more stable for that reason too, is you're just going to see less under your foot, especially in the racing versions of trail shoes. Granted, there's very minimal low stack height road shoes as well. So you can see them both ways, but in general, um, you'll find that trend. I remember um, for the the West Coast, like some of the mountain races, if we're talking Spartan racing, wasn't it Angel Quintero yeah. who wore like the Lunar Racer or something for like Mountain Beast? Because you could get away with it. Yeah. Adios. And he wore the Adidas RC. Something like that. I thought he was wearing Nikes. I saw him in Nikes once, I thought. Did you? He was, mm -hmm. he was always a Reebok-sponsored athlete for Mexico, or not always, but often. Mm -hmm. And Reebok's parent company was Adidas. And so since Reebok didn't have an adequate shoe, that he got blisters in Reebok's trail shoes. So they let him wear Adidas. Mm-hmm. But he may have been in Nikes at one point. Yeah. Les Cowan won his age group or was top three at Big Bear in the Kinvaras. Sure. Sweet. He found that they worked well for him on downhills on on tame terrain, so he wore them in the mountains. Nice. There you go. You were going to say? Well, I was going to just, just 
clarify stack height. Some people aren't familiar with that. Stack height just means the difference between how high the heel is and how high the forefoot is. And every shoe other than racing spikes on the track have a drop where the heel's higher than the toe is, and it gives you a forward tilt. And oftentimes, the higher that tilt is, the more it propels you to get forward into your stride. But on trails, the higher your heel is off the ground, the more unstable you are. And so that's why you're going to see lower stack heights. So like roads, 8 to 12 millimeters is pretty common. On trails, you rarely see legit trail shoes that are over 6 mil drop. They're out there. There are some high stack trail shoes, but you don't really feel confident. You feel like you're suddenly in high heels. Right. Yeah. Just think of a mini high heel. That's how we talk about drop, how high the heel is raised above the toe. Um, okay. What else do you want to cover there with that question? I think what you said is the most important. It comes down to the terrain you're using, knowing how aggressive the trails, how soft the terrain is, how technical the terrain is, um, that sort of thing. I think the only other piece worth mentioning is that trail shoes matter the wetter the course is, obviously from a grip standpoint, but from drainage. Road shoes aren't designed to deal with water. Most aren't. There are some racers who are designed, if you get really sweaty or or if you're in a downpour, that they shed water. But trail shoes are designed around getting wet. And so their materials, if they have the choice between a softer absorbent material or a slightly harsher water repellent or something that just won't retain water, they go with the latter. So trail shoes can get wet and dry out quicker and drain quicker. Where road shoes, if you go through a stream in a road shoe, you're going to squish until your race is over. Whereas trail shoes, you might squish for the next 100 meters to some way, like a speed goat. I think in the speed goat three, I squished for like two miles in an ultra once. And then suddenly it was dry again. And nowadays, I think they drain a little better. So they're, they des- they're designed to handle anything that's less in a vacuum, they handle better. But if it is a very clean, pristine trail, oftentimes road shoes are just better because they're going to be lighter and more comfortable. Yeah. And the caveat to everything we're saying is that you can take a low end trail shoe and, and it achieves none of these things we're talking about. Basically, mm-hmm. like you could just take a road shoe and slap different tread on the bottom and call it a trail shoe. And you could do the same with a trail shoe. Just take a road shoe with very little support and slap some more, you know, you could do it vice versa. I, th- I feel like we're talking about trail shoes that are doing their job properly here because there's a lot of exceptions to that rule. Yeah. Um, all right, should we move to the next? Do you have any, Do you want to just fire off what you've got for a change? Shall we? Dare I? You dare. Dare you. Potential Q&A from Adam Beach. I believe I've heard you guys as well as other endurance coaches say that athletes should gain adaptations at a lower mileage slash volume, even if they're capable of running at a higher volume. For example, athletes should stay at 50 miles per week if he's getting better, even if he's capable of running 70. I've never really understood why this is true. Wouldn't the athlete running 70 just get closer to his absolute peak faster? That's a phenomenal question. So to paraphrase, when you're building up volume, if you're getting adaptations at a certain volume, let's say it's 50 miles per week, general consensus, people often say, stay there until you stop improving, then move up rather than you could handle more. Let's bump up and reap the benefits of the higher when we get better faster by pushing the envelope in mileage or volume. Why would, why would coaches say that? And could it be wrong? Yeah. Uh, it is a fantastic question in which I still think there's a right answer to you could stand on either side of the fence and start arguing. Um, 
But the number one, did he did he use the caveat about staying injury free or healthy in his questioning? Nope. Okay. Did not well, did not appear in there. Did not appear in there. Um. So first and foremost, uh, the injured runner is renders himself useless, and so when intensity and or duration is increased, there's an inherent risk of overuse injuries popping up. And so first and foremost, increasing mileage and time on feet into perpetuity, you will find a limit there. And you are much more effective at running a lower viable dose or minimal effective dose than swinging a little too hard too often or too much too often, and then ending up injured and having to backtrack. The long game generally favors the one who errs on the conservative side. And so just from like an injury prevention or maintenance standpoint, that's the one reason why we just don't see like a, a straight up mileage graph that's like increase, 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 increase. Because if you follow that principle, eventually you increase until you crash. And then suddenly not only are you fatigued, but you're probably dealing with some sort of overuse injury as well. So first you want to prove to yourself that your body is capable of handling this workload over a period of time to ensure that when you do start to take the next jump, you're not already layering something on top of a problem. And so that's the first thing that comes to mind right away is like less can be more, especially on the injury front. And so I think a lot of people abide by that principle, proving your health first, but not just like, oh, for a week or two, proving your health over more duration um, before bumping up. That's the first thing that uh, comes to mind for me. You're exactly right. And I like that you said prove it for a while because early on the concept of I can handle more we're almost always basing that off of fatigue feeling, energy feeling, and muscular feeling in our body. Am I too sore? Am I too sluggish? Am I too run down? What we're not able to feel is, is our bone structure, bone density suffering? Are we starting to develop some issues that are going to turn into a stress fracture? Tendons, ligaments, joints, are they starting to wear down and have problems? You can't feel those things occurring generally. Sometimes the bone thing, but usually don't feel the bone thing until it manifests. So we're saying, hey, I did 50 mile weeks. I feel okay. I'm going to bump up ahead. We can't feel the places that are most likely going to actually break down on us. We can only feel energy, lack of energy, and soreness. And so that's the preventative nature of this is, could I handle 70? Maybe, but you can't say yes for sure because you don't know like what lies beneath down there. So I think that's really important that you led with that to start with. And you often don't know till it's too late, which is the bummer about this. This all like you bump up and you feel good for a week or two and then it's hindsight, right? Oh my God, my shins hurt so bad. I got to take tomorrow off. Uh, They're not ready yet. I got to take the next day off. Pretty soon you're at four days off in a row or you're doing this song and dance with an injury where you're only being able to train half the time you want. And if you ran 40 mile weeks for seven weeks straight is much better than running 70 mile weeks for five weeks straight. And then having two weeks of BS because you're dealing with either too much fatigue where then you're, you're swinging, you're, you can't hit your quality sessions as you'd like. Cause you're tired all the time. And don't get me wrong. You need at points, like you're going to want to bump up mileage and all of that. But these are the reasons why there's some holding back involved, and that's what we're dissecting. There's um, two other major points that I actually want to uh, uh, want to bring up with um, this. Let me all. squeeze one piece in first. Oh yeah, just 
to bow tie that health piece. Yep. And it's to reiterate what we said on here before is that ligaments, tendons, joints take up to three times as long to strengthen as muscles do. So if you're feeling good with your muscles after three weeks of volume, you won't know for sure that you're healthy until six to nine weeks. That's the key point here. You can't feel that lack of strengthening happening or not, but you can prove it by tripling the time. I hit a 40-mile week. Great. Hit it two more times. Now see how we feel. I did it for a month. Great. Hit it for three months, and now you've proven it. It's it's like the scientific part of the body that says they just regenerate slower says you have to build slower because of that. Sure, you can push the envelope, and you might be right. But like you said, any increase you get from jumping from 50 to 70 is negated if you get hurt. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm glad you clarified that, actually. And that's a big, that's where things usually go wrong. It's either going to go wrong in a bone or it's going to go wrong in an attachment point, tendon or ligament. Yeah. So the next point of two that I have is um, sort of the fatigue syndrome when you're bumping up mileage. It's something you need to be aware of. You talk about this, like, let's say if you look at my hands and I'm running 40 mile weeks and I'm balancing fatigue and I'm just hovering right at the right spot, right? I take a workout, my fatigue goes high. And by the time my next quality session comes, they're back to about even. And then I'm ready to hit another one. And then my fatigue and my fitness all kind of waver at the same length, right? Well, when you bump up your mileage, what happens is that fatigue starts to stack and you come ready for your next quality workout, but the fatigue's not quite out of there yet. And you hit it again. And pretty soon you're in this cycle where you're behind right? You're never actually able to access all your fitness because you're too fatigued. Mm -hmm. That is called adaptation. Like that's part of the recovery adaptation cycle. And it's very important. However, if you do that too quickly or too often, what happens is you end up tired and useless and not adapted. And it can be detrimental if it's done irresponsibly. You can't just increase exponentially and expect like, oh, if I run a thousand mile week, I'm going to be the best runner in the world. No, you're going to end up in a hospital bed. It doesn't work that way. And so you have to do that like fatigue, to performance sort of like equation. And that's why you need to be very careful with bump, just doing more, doing more, doing more, because you end up in a hole and actually performing worse if you're not able to keep up with the workload. And so again, establishing baselines, staying there for a while before bumping up, testing the waters at a higher mileage, going back down, making sure we're good, testing it again a little more frequently, going back down to make sure we're good. So you have to balance out that workload to fatigue like ratio and that becomes very real. Like I remember in college when it was like, okay, you got to run 70 mile weeks before cross country to get yourself ready. And I didn't know anything about polarized training or 80, 20 running. Then I just went on, put on my shoes and ran. Everyone felt like shit. I showed up running slow all the time because my body was garbage, right? Nobody, I performed much better off of 50 miles a week and instead of 70 and felt better doing it too. Like shouldn't more work equal more results? Nope especially depending on who you are as an athlete. So I wanted to make that point clear too, that whole like um, fatigue to performance sort of um, conundrum, we'll call it. Yeah, and that's that's really well said. And then the piece I want to hone in on is how does the body actually react to any sort of outside input, any sort of stress, any sort of uh, really anything you do to it. So if you look at medicine, if, you're, if you've never taken ibuprofen in your entire life, you could take half a pill, a full pill, two pills, you're going to feel better from it. But if you start by taking half a pill and you still feel better, it means that when that stops being as effective for you, you can move up to one pill. If you start with taking two right off the bat, eventually the only option is to move to three. 
and you get to that point. So yeah, you get damn, to feeling damn, better. Damn you, Bracken. Yeah. Damn you, Bracken. My last point you stole. This is why we're co-hosts. Hate took my point. Ah. Continue. You're just making me angry. You want to finish it off? No, I want you to finish it off. I just, I was really chomping at the this bit. Is two episodes in a row. I was going to use the word minimal via- viable dose, right? And here you go talking about dosages of freaking medicine. I wasn't going to use it that way, but go ahead, you jerk. Yeah. But yeah, you, you're right. If you were on an aggressive training cycle to PR in six weeks, you probably take your maximum safe dose to try to get there. But because most of us want to be better next year and the year after and the year after, if we start with two doses early, now we're dosing three and pretty quickly we're to a point where it's not safe to dose more. We just have to keep dosing what we've been doing and we're going to start getting diminishing results on that from that dosage. And it's the same thing with running. Early on, no matter what volume you do, you're going to develop things you want to develop mitochondria, red blood cell, capillary bed, all those kind of things, they happen once you get over 30 minutes of running. So going up to 90, you're going to have a bunch of time where you're not really developing because you can only develop so much on each run. So you might as well do 40 early on, get all the benefits, stay healthy, work on doing some mechanical speed work and other things like that, and then you can dose up to 60 a little later. And then after a while, 75 minutes, and then 90, and you can actually use those extra minutes effectively rather than just working through fatigue. So if you start right with 70 minutes of running, where do you go from there to to enact more adaptations on your body, you either have to go up or faster. And now you're dealing with things that you're still going to get diminishing returns, but you're, you're walking closer and closer to the danger zone, where the further you start from the danger zone, the more room you have to expand into your work rate and your workload without approaching the danger zone yet. So could, for example, Kirk, could we go out right now and run 80 mile weeks and stay healthy if we used all the best practices. Soft ground, varying our shoes, varying our terrain, doing some work uphill, downhill, using uh, sports medicine doctors, all those things. Yeah, we probably could. But what do we do next year now? You got to go to 90. You got to go to 100. And eventually we're, we're, we can't go any bigger. However, if we start at 50 or 60, still get like 90 to 95% of the benefits. Now we've got like 10 years of building up to 100 mile per week where we can get better each year while still hitting our quality. So it's about minimum effective dose early. Could you go faster? Sure. But you're going to run into diminishing returns quicker and injury risk skyrockets. 100%. The more you do, the more you feel like or need to or have to do to get better and you end up trapping yourself. And so best case is minimal viable dose to induce improvement. And your indicator is I'm not really improving as much anymore or not at all. And it's time to increase or change stimulus. But uh, you end up trapping yourself with nowhere to go. Uh, And that can be kind of a scary thing. You want options, right? You want your body to adapt to the least amount of stimulus possible because that's best case scenario. Um, and again, I'm not advocating for you not to bump up mileage. You should at times if you know it's what's needed. And of course, but it's just the way to do that. And that's not what this episode is about is to test the waters up for a week or two and then go back down to a dose you know you're comfortable at. Make sure you're good there again. Sprinkle it in there. Don't just go all in. But once you start doing that, then it's also like a 
a gradual process as you're introducing more stimulus. It's not like just jumping off a cliff and then landing in the high mileage pool and staying there. It's, it's a, yeah. it's quick little hits and then coming back down. So that's the way you do it when you transition. And if you do it too early, it kind of, you have confounding variables. I was running 50 miles a week doing this stuff. Now I'm doing 80. And generally when you switch from 50 to 80, you have to change the composition of your week. And then it's like, did I get better because I ran 80 miles a week? Or did I get better because I cut speed work out? And at 80 miles a week, I have to do different types of speed work to stay fresh or healthy than I was at 50. And I don't really know which thing did what. Whereas if you're at 50 and you try different speed work types out or different training styles out and you figure out what it does and now you start to feel like, I've done all those things the next logical thing is I just have to bump up volume now and see how much better I get. And then you bump up to 60 or 70. Then you see black and white what happens. Volume increase to me seems to be like when I've covered all the other bases, I think like, I think it's just time to bump up volume. That's the time. It's not to see I'm getting better now. How much faster could I get better by increasing? It's, you don't want to be caught out, held out to dry like you said. I did this in Colorado one year. I just started cranking out big vert and big mileage for me weeks, trying to hit 70 to 80, trying to hit, you know, at least five digits of, of vert each week. And I got to the point where I didn't know where to go from here. Mm-hmm. I can't sustain this volume. Now that I've started to layer in work, quality work, I've got to drop down to 60 now and to get my quality in. And I was sitting here looking at May, middle of May thinking, I can't push my volume any higher this training cycle for this season. So for now, from May through September, all I can do is drop my volume or try to hold on. It's a depressing feeling. Where had I started a little lower, I could keep building up through the year and kind of fabricate more momentum that way rather than get to that depressing point of, well, all I can do is less. Everybody's in such a damn rush all the time to get better, to do more. And I pat you on the back for it. I appreciate your go-getter, do-it-at-all-costs, be-the-hardest-worker-in-the-room attitude. But it's usually not those dudes that are on the podium. It's the smart ones. It's the tactical ones. It's the ones who have a thoughtful yeah. approach. It's not the put-your-head-down-and-do-the-work guys. That I mean, that's part of their process, but it's not the only part of their process. And that's the big difference. Well, and what do we see from people who have done it? I know we're spending a lot of time on this, but this is a good topic. Uh, Johnny Luna Lima is a great example of this. And he's been open talking about this, which is why I feel comfortable using him as an example. He went big on volume, real big, lots of running, lots of biking, tons of vert, ripping downhills. And he went on a tear in the national series. And he won like two out of three races, Back, he won two races back to back against world class athletes and still ended up taking like fifth or seventh at world championships, but wasn't himself by the end of it. And that was the last we saw of him for a while. He was too overcooked. He started to have issues pop up. He was dealing with really imbalances chemically in his body as of like that, that body hypercompensating for what he was doing for it. And that one season cost him the next two, maybe three now we're looking at. And he's starting to come back now and he's starting to put some results on the table. And it's really exciting to see. But Johnny would be the first to tell you that as cool as his podiums were standing atop there, they weren't worth the next two to three years. 
And so for everyone that makes it on top of the podium by taking a risk in training, there's an example of someone who regrets it because they couldn't stay on top for long enough to make it worth it. Yeah, it's a good example of that. I tried getting him on the podcast to talk about it. We couldn't get it to line up. Maybe this is a good refresher to reach out to him. He's got a, some interesting in, uh, perspective on that whole overtraining syndrome uh, situation. But Yeah. Okay, should we move to the next one? Might as well. That was only an hour. We could make a whole training Tuesday out of that topic, and, and I, I'm glad that was a question asked. Thank you, Adam. Oh, my goodness. Shoe question. But not the type of shoe question you're thinking, Kirk. This will be a very quick one and one that I have very little to add to the conversation on. Okay. I'm serious. You'll you'll realize it once I read it. I have nothing to add to this. Okay. What do you think about running in worn out shoes? I typically stick with ultra lone peak shoes. Once a year, I'll, t- I'll buy a new pair. But they take so long to get worn in. Sometimes I get some pains and discomfort in them. But I always go back to my older, really worn out pair, and I feel so much better running in those. You see now? <laughs> uh, ultra Lone Peaks these days feel worn. They they feel worn out as soon as you put them on. To be honest, they got nothing beneath them. Those old Lone Peaks I love. They were kind of they were hideous and big and blocky, but they had some squish under them, and I loved them. The recent Lone Peaks are just a okay. little more minimalist for me. Um, so his question is, should you run in worn out shoes or not? You got to listen to what your feet are telling you. That's the main thing. So if the answer is worn out shoes, by God, you go crazy. If that's actually what makes your feet feel better, um, your feet will tell you what they like and what they don't like. It's as simple as that. Personally, that wouldn't work for me. Not a chance. Things would start popping up, but that's where uh, the nuances happen. Um, what do you have to say about it? That's so brief. Well, I don't have any experience with that. The moment my shoes are done, I get aches and pains. Me too. And if they're trail shoes, I lose traction or they compact, the foam compacts, and I don't like them anymore. So I've never once in my life thought, you know what I need to do is run in an older version of these. My shoes feel the best early on. Like Speed Goats, my first 100 miles are my favorite. And then I'm ready to get a new pair, even though they have some more life in them. So I don't have experience with this. My only guess was that you're talking about zero drop, minimal footwear. And at that point, you're not concerned about cushion. You're not concerned about structure and support that much. When you've worn them a ton, they conform to your feet. You've compressed that foam right to how your foot stride is. And since you're using your barefoot minimal stride anyway, it's the most conducive to your natural running style like you're actually running barefoot. And the new ones mess with your feet a little bit and put pressure where you're not used to it. That's the only thing I can think. But again, I have no experience with that. Yeah, I find the lighter of foot runners can get away with that a lot more than the heavier of foot. I would consider myself a heavier of foot. I mean, I'm 170 pounds, which would be considered big by like in quotes fast runner standards. You're 100, you're 180 pounds these days, getting all beefy, hitting the weights. It's like a little dude, more. a little more. Dude, when 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 those shoes start wearing out, like I feel it in the chain going up. Like something is going to start barking, or my legs are going to feel flat because I just need a little. I needed that shoe to give me something back. Otherwise, my body absorbs it a little harder than somebody who's lighter. And so I would, ass- I'm going to go out on a limb and say this guy or girl is a little lighter on foot. I could be wrong, but there's exceptions to every rule, but who knows? I don't know what else I have to say about that, but if it works, it works. Your body will tell you. So You're right, though. The more efficient and minimal and light you are and the more you want to run barefoot style the more you need your shoe to stay out of your way 100 percent. 
And the more you're bringing the freight train to the to the table, the more you want the shoe to give you some support and some help when you're running. I wouldn't put a minimalist shoe on a rhinoceros, Bracken. That wouldn't be right. But a gazelle, yeah. Nope. Go prance. <laughs> All right. Tom Simeone. Good guy. Used to work with Tom. I like him a lot. Hey, Tom. But he's gone through the ringer physically recently. So here we go. I had a total knee replacement mid-December 2022. The running volume significantly decreased due to the knee. Last running race was July 2022, with machine training the rest of the way. My aerobic and anaerobic volume is not where it was at my peak, but it's coming back with all the machine work. What is your recommendation on how to get back into running after a year off of feet, considering this will be all new running mechanics with the new knee? Will, with my machine... Oh, sorry. With my engine coming back from the machine, how will that translate to running when I am able and strong enough to take that first stride? Uh, yeah. Um, we can make a whole episode out of that one too, but let's do our best to keep it to five or 10 minutes. Um, Tom Simeone is like, he's 50 years old and he is a guy that's just been taking care of himself, at least aesthetically his whole life. Like he is a guy that looks like he works out, right? He is, he's a tank. He's, he's, layer layers on layers of muscle looking great at 50 doing a lot of things right so he's coming from a background of sport and using his body his entire life probably why the knee issue popped up who knows right um you know the biggest thing is the answer first of all is this cardio fitness that is coming back won't translate to your running right away but it'll suddenly springboard you in the future uh unknowingly so you're gonna go out for your first run and you're gonna end up being very humbled and being like wow well Thank God I spent all that time on the rower. This run felt like crap, but don't worry. It's in there. So keep putting that money in the bank. Um, first thing when you're returning to running is it needs to be much slower of a progression than you think. Like, oh, I used to run eight miles or 10 miles. Like you might go run six minutes your first time and you might do that twice in one week. Then you might do that again week two, just to make sure I'm talking six total minutes, probably broken up in minute long intervals. And then you're going to progress. Your first four to six weeks are going to seem like you're making no progress, but that's what required to make sure that you're good to go in the future. So very slow reintroduction. Two, three times a week at most and no quality work. We're just getting used to time on feet. Your quality's coming in cross-training modalities. So very, very, very conservative early on that first four, six, eight, ten weeks even to the point where you probably could and know you could do more, but you cannot set yourself back. So um, very minimal running uh, volume when you return and then sticking to steady or easy runs, getting your quality elsewhere until you can prove to yourself that you're ready to start tightening the screws on your training regimen. And so, um, I hate to say it cause after injury and surgery, you're so chomping at the bit to get back to it. And you dream of the days where you go put your shoes on and go up for a run. And it's like, Oh, though, that's what all this was about this knee surgery. So I could get back to that. Well, you're going to have to just temper your enthusiasm for a few more months Yes, months as you responsibly go through the ramp up phase. And so that's yep. a lot I just threw at you, but that's uh, where I'd start. You said it all. So I'm just going to say the why. You're absolutely right. It's going to translate not at all and then all at once. Yep. And it's because your engine's there. Your, your oxygen and blood pathways are built. They're there but you're doing a new skill that you have not been doing, it's like jumping into the pool. 
how will all my running my whole life help me in the pool? At first, not at all, because I don't have the skill to use my engine. But as soon as I get my stroke down smooth, suddenly I'll be faster than my peers or at least have more endurance than my peers because I can start using my lungs and heart. Early on, I can't even use my lungs or heart because I'm thrashing away in the water and sinking. That's what's happening in running right now. Even though you have a background in running, your running mechanics are so rusty and hitting the ground does not happen on machines. And it's very costly to your cardiovascular system, even though it sounds weird, to hit the ground when you haven't been hitting the ground. So up front, you're going to feel terrible on every run. Your, your breathing is going to be just like really ragged trying to run easy paces. But the moment you figure out, all right, I'm hitting the ground again. My body's getting better at it. The skill of running comes back. Suddenly your fitness is going to be like, wow, I'm kind of popping with fitness because it was always there. It just needed to be unearthed. And Kirk has done that off stress fractures. And I have done this off knee surgeries. And Tom, I know you've even done knee surgeries before, I believe. You've felt it before. It's just going to be more extreme this time. So the time on feet will come. But as soon as you're used to that, your fitness is just going to be waiting there for you like an old friend. And just keep in mind, all those little pieces will take three times as long to get used to the impact as your muscles do. So... Keep following that rule and your fitness will be waiting. Yeah, and that resistance to impact piece is so big when you've been away from running. It's like, yeah, biomechanically, your body isn't firing efficiently to run through like the stride cycle nice and smooth. So it's going to be a very inefficient, costly stride. But then just the damage your muscles take to impact at first, like it, it just wins. It just wins. And then all of a sudden you're going to like start bumping up fitness like exponentially fast and be like, I don't know where this is coming from, but suddenly I'm just, you know, I, I'm here and now I'm three steps ahead all of a sudden in a matter of a week's time. And I don't know where it came from. Well, that's all of that aerobic work you'd already done on the cross training. And now finally your structure is keeping up and able to, to maintain and use the running form properly for longer. And so I think it's the resistance impact piece that really nips people early until they, they acclimate to that. Um, I see you got another one in, in the chamber there. I agree. You happy with this one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good luck, Tom. We're rooting for you. All right. Last name I might butcher. It's either Spencer Nelson or Nelson. When is it better to switch to two workouts in a day? I'm a high school math teacher and have been running 30 to 40 miles a week to prep for the Chicago Marathon and have a lot more open time in the summer to train. When is it better to do two workouts in a day when scheduling isn't a problem? This is a classic running question. Singles or doubles? And when is it appropriate? I don't know. What is he currently doing? Currently doing singles because he's teaching throughout the day, maybe even coaching, but he's about to hit summer break as a teacher and he's got all the time in the world. Uh, we could tie this into the answer about bumping up your mileage and should you or could you? Should you if you could or should you not? Um uh, let's go with sure, uh, sure playing with it. Considering his marathon isn't until the fall, he has the time on his hands. Uh, the, the, the way you double is in my opinion, anyways, in marathon training is taking, let's say your quality day and adding in a nice, easy, shorter run in the afternoon. It starts the recovery process a little quicker and it's minimally risky and then layering in, you know, you're going like two shorter runs on top of a 
Um, maybe a more intense morning session of sorts would be the place to start. I, I go back and forth on the return on investment for doubles, if I'm being honest. I love this. We're going to disagree. Well, no, I, I, the effectiveness of them making you any better uh, necessarily. Uh, I've never, I experimented with this in college a little bit. And granted, I was it was more prematurely developing as a runner. So my durability wasn't very high, but for me, they never really moved the needle. In fact, it just left me feeling a little more flat and I didn't feel like the bang was worth, I feel like I was working more and harder to get the same or worse results. And so for me at the time, I kept rubbing my face in it and then I'm like, this is not working. Other guys on the team were doubling things like that. And for me, it seemed like I needed that 24 hour cycle between efforts for me to just stay effective. So I have a personal bias towards doubles because they didn't work for me early on. And I'm sure it might not be the case today, but if you're healthy, I think the work can get done in singles, unless you're a guy running a hundred and hundred mile weeks or more Then there's, you're going to have to start playing Tetris mm-hmm. with when and where you do your, your volume. So I didn't clear the water at all. I'm just confessing my bias towards the fact that doubles didn't, didn't serve me super well in the past. So why don't you take a firm stance on this? from some sort of objective point of view. All right. First of all, I agree with everything you said. I think that doubles don't work for you if you go about them in a way that they don't work for you. Okay. That's really not a clear stance. And can I interrupt real quick? Cause I have one point I want to make then. Yeah. And, and that is the way we doubled in college was on recovery days, which is the dumbest thing. Like we'd have a quality session Monday but then Tuesday'd be like, well, it's a non-quality day, so get in four miles in the morning and eight miles at night, and then you have another quality day the next day, and all you did was muddy the waters. If you're going to double, layer it into days that are already damaging. Don't shortcut your recovery process by trying to squeeze doubles in between quality sessions or days that matter, and that's where we had gone wrong and weren't guided on. So I just want to add that into my personal bias. Mm-hmm. Like It can work in a better and a different way. That's all. And you just reminded me of that. Yeah, I like that. And I, I, I will actually counter that while agreeing with that hmm. as soon as I make my definitive statement. I will say that for the vast majority of people, I don't think anything applies to everyone in almost any walk of life. But for the most people, I think that doubling is always better hmm. than singles. Always. I think that it's all in the details, though. Doubling can look incredibly different. And when I first was successful with doubling, because I, again, like you in college, when I got down to Campbell, we doubled two to three times a week and it was not pleasant. Got five in the morning, 10 in the afternoon. The five felt like a death march. The 10 felt like compromised running almost, but due to just pure fatigue and wear down of the day before. And then the next day it's like, oh, I got to get up and do a quality. It was not conducive to feeling good or performing good, performing well, I should say. However, in Colorado, I really got my doubling down and here's how I started it. Kirk, I started it on my recovery days. I took my recovery run and I slashed it by 30% in the morning. If I was doing a six to seven mile recovery run, I did four to five and finished feeling like that was barely even a workout. And then that evening I'd do 20 minutes of running. And I found that I recovered better because I was able to stick to the purpose of the day, which was recovery. So because I wanted six to seven on the day, 
I'd push for the mileage, even if I had to run it easy, but I'd just be feeling sluggish. So I stopped before I felt sluggish. And then eight hours later, I'd run just 20 minutes and I'd feel better than I'd felt that morning. And I'd wake up the next day feeling ready to rock. And so that's what I started with. And it was actually conducive to recovery because I wasn't doing much more work, but I was feeling better in both sessions. And then I started adding it on quality session days, adding another 20 or 30, just 20 minutes is how I started. I dosed it real small and I found that it wasn't cardiovascular benefits early on. I was better at recovering and then I was also getting way more dosage of the skill of running. So early on, I don't think my heart rate, my VO2 max, any of those data metrics could have shown that I was improving, but my stride just started to feel crisper and cleaner and better. It's kind of like, I always think of it like a skill sport, like shooting a basketball. If you go in and do a 60 minute shooting session in the morning and then wait until the next day, that's typical. But what if in the evening you just shot 25 or 50 extra free throws? It doesn't really change your demands on your day, but now you're only going eight to 10 hours between practicing that skill and it never, ever starts to feel foreign. Because you're always doing it. But that second session is not costing you anything. That's how I treated my doubling early on. And then I got to the point where I could add more on other days. Like you said, on quality days, you're already damaging. Do a little bit more. And I was running volume where I could handle it. But it then I started to see the actual physical metrics rise from all the extra work I was doing. So I think from one capacity or the other, one of the two will work for everyone. Both won't work for everyone, and the same one won't work for everyone, but everyone could benefit from one or the other. And usually, people who are listening to running podcasts trying to get better are not pro athletes who have spent 20 years running, which means they can always improve their skill of running. And if they just every evening before bed ran one mile, every day ran one extra mile, it'd be almost impossible to get hurt off that. But that would be seven more times practicing the actual skill of running, improving your foot strike, improving your arm carriage, turning over a little bit better with cadence. And I think that everyone could improve from something like that. I have no arguments to your statements. Yes. I don't think we disagree either. I think the question has to be asked, are you doubling to increase your overall volume or are you doubling to disperse your load? Right. If you're doubling to disperse your load, science has proved that it is far it is far less likely to <laughs> you can't get the child out of you, can you? <laughs> the look on your face. Just get back to load disbursement. <laughs> I'm trying here, but your facial expressions. Um is that it's less uh less risk of injury. If you're allowing recover like let's say you're running seventy miles a week in singles, or you're running seventy miles a week in doubles. The 70 mile per week athlete in doubles is less likely to get injured. Studies have typically shown that, right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, sure. Like, right, sure. But I'm assuming this gentleman's intention is to run doubles and increase volume. And when those are combined, then you have to, I couldn't agree more. The devil is in the details of how you do it. And it must be correctly approached and it can move the needle forward. I do agree with you 100%. Um, but you're right. Details, 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 especially if volume increase is the yeah. reasoning behind it. And I want to nerd out for just like 60 seconds. What were you, what were you just doing? About mitochondria and... Oh, you're really going to nerd out. All right. I, th I, th I think that was more philosophical. This is going to be slightly scientific. Mm. Capillary bed density and mitochondria production are spurred on by aerobic work. 
The science says it generally starts happening after 30 minutes and it tails off in athletes, well-trained versus unwell-trained, somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes. And anything after that, you're not really doing much because your body turns to other more pressing needs like, we're going to try to not die. We're burning through all this energy. We've got to start processing things differently and we're going to work on other things. So you got that 30 to 60 minute window or 90 maybe if you're really well-trained. And so if you look at it from the scientific standpoint, if you can dose that twice a day, going out for one 90-minute run from an internal standpoint might be less effective than doing 45 and 45. If you were purely about building those roads and pathways inside your body without changing your volume dramatically. So that is one other benefit because that old adage, not the old adage, the question, is it better to run 10 every day or 5 and 5? The answer is yes. You need to run 10 a bunch because if you're training for endurance, you have to be able to run without stopping. But maybe half the time you're running 5 and 5 to really spur on that production that you're losing in 10 after the first 60 minutes. So from a scientific standpoint, there also is a real benefit to doubling because you get to incite those changes twice per day. And I think I think maybe above all else, um, aside from my own personal experience and bias towards not doubling, um, the efficiency piece you can't argue against. Exposing yourself to a stimulus more frequently yeah. is going to make you more efficient and effective at it. And if you're somebody who feels a little sloppy or you know that there could be some form improvement or especially when you're fatigued, like repetitive exposure is going to cause the sun to burn you less and AKA the sun being running and yep. things breaking down. Right. So like in that regard, you're hundred percent correct. Um, all right. Well, uh, do you have more on that? I have a question for you. Yes. I have a question for you on that. Mm -hmm. When in your life has your stride felt the best, not your fitness, not anything else, just the actual act of running. When has it been the best? Because I have two clear points in mind. One was at Whitewater when we were doing an insane amount of interval work, fast speed work. I felt like I could just go into a fast stride at any moment, and it was so effortless. Running 27 seconds in a 200 felt like just this is what my body's meant to do. I didn't have to fight for speed. It was just an effortless stride. I didn't have a very good easy running or long run stride, but my speed stride, my fast running, has never felt more effortless. And in Colorado, the act of running, just rolling out into an easy run or a long run, has never felt crisper or cleaner to me than when I was doubling. It just really cleaned up my stride like it never has. It's never been more compact or effortless to just run easy to moderate. So the combination of those two, the, the common factor is that I was doing three to four speed workouts a week in college. I was dosing speed all the time, and I got really efficient at that. But I was a terrible long-distance runner. And in Colorado, I was dosing the skill of running 10 to 15 times a week. And I just became real compact and crisp and efficient at running. When was yours? That makes sense. Mine is the same. College. Um, college and now, though. That's the difference. Um, college and now. Now is how you felt in Colorado. I feel like I roll out of my – I click right in and it feels smooth and efficient. Uh, then I was clunkier on recovery efforts, but running faster was like my stride just was, that's what it did. It's how it did it. It didn't know any different and it felt like commonplace, but, um, I'm going to say now as in my entire life, I think. And what does now look like in terms of dosage of running, both in frequency and just duration and things like that? 
Um, Compared to maybe the, the last 10 years. It's the most I've done when I put my shoes on. It's the most I've done every time I put my shoes on. Um, but frequency-wise, college was six or seven days a week, um, which there's something to that as well. But uh, I think it's just staying healthy for a period of time for me and not having any large breaks to to, to kink the chain, right? And so it's just, it's, you know, nothing special. It's, it hasn't been anything special. It's just been consistent, consistent bank deposits, you know. Um, next one. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if we'll get to mine today. Here I am like, yeah, we're going to get it. We're going to get ahead of it, and we're going to get all the questions answered. And here I'm like, we're probably not going to get all the questions answered. <laughs> this is what happens when I start screenshotting questions. Uh-huh. All right. Part two of this question. I have type 1 diabetes, and I'm curious if you know any successful athletes with chronic illnesses and how they train around it. And do you know any coaches specifically with, who specialize in training with type 1 diabetes? I have found no truly helpful training and have a lot of very specific questions. I'm useless here. I've never worked with an athlete with type 1 diabetes, and it's not an area I've ever researched into because up until this moment, it's never really crossed my mind that this is something I should know more about. It's like I, I want to I wanna start throwing punches in the air and guessing, right, like just shooting shots with my eyes closed, um, but I, I don't think that would be serving <laughs> anybody purpose um, by doing so because I have thoughts, but I don't think they're verified thoughts. Um, I will say that I had a roommate in college who was type one diabetic. So I watched him put shots in his thigh every single day and he ran in college. And I know there was some nuances with what he ate when he ate it in regards to what he was doing in college. It was a little less confusing because one, we were, well, the mainly because we're running shorter distances. Like if, if if you're out there and you're running a three-hour long run or racing a long time, that's very different than going out and ripping for four and a half minutes on the track. In a race, our blood sugar levels don't fluctuate as much in that amount of time, right? No matter, you know. So mm-hmm. it, my experience was he did it and he made it work. And I know there were some frustrations along the way, but he was a high-performing athlete and managed it so i know that it's possible uh and i think i'm just gonna stop there dang it i wish i could help this person more i wish i could yeah we might need to have a an expert or someone who's dealing with it and succeeding with it on the show at some point we should we should look into that i'll look into that for you gentlemen or madame uh in regards to dealing with type 1 diabetes and endurance training it kind of bothers me that usually we can come up with something but, and of course I could say typical, like, hey, if you're a type one diabetic, here's the rules, da, da, da. like nothing you don't already know at home if you're a type one diabetic. So, right. yeah. Okay. Shoot. Striking a, a hit and a miss, swinging a miss. All right. Sorry. That's it. I'm done. I'm going out with a whimper. That was my last question. <laughs> oh, it was. Yeah. Oh man. All right. Well, that was anticlimactic. Um, do you, should I go to mine then? Now we're going to do here. We got what? 20 minutes left? Yep. <laughs> 20 minutes left. Let's see what we can get done in 20 minutes. Redeem us. Well, this is a longer one, and I think it was sent to both of us. So let me just read it all. It's an email. You know when the ones come through via email, they're they're very, they're taking it seriously, right? So these get a little longer via email. It's also mm-hmm. a little more respectful to send us a long message via email than IG because IG is, it's like reading a long text. It's tough. It's tough to do. If I can't screenshot it in one screenshot, it should be an email. 100%. And this is not able to be in one screenshot. So there you go. 
Ryan Kagan. Uh, I've been training under your running public training plan since the run specific plan was released at the beginning of this year. I've seen fantastic results so far and just want to thank you for putting together such a comprehensive plan. Amazing stuff. I've always struggled with cramping and through your podcast, I was able to find the issue and corrected it. I recently finished a 25 mile race, feeling great at the end with very minimal cramping. Turned around and PR'd my 5K the next weekend, but that's neither here nor there. Well, I guess that's just a plug for a running plan to start. That's nice. Thanks, Ryan. Did you write this intro? <laughs> no. Is this even part of the question? No, it's oh, you can't see, but it is there, I promise. All right. I think we can do this question now. I'm prepping for the Leadville Silver Rush 50-mile race in July and have a few specific questions as it relates to what could would be needed to finish the race in the cutoff. Specifically, I'm wondering what should take priority to ensure my legs are durable at mile 45 and I can finish the race in good spirits, or as good as they can be. Should I prioritize miles per week, time on feet, elevation gain loss, strength training, something else? For reference, I'm averaging about 30 to 35 miles per week over five days, two days off running. I ran a 50K in September, built base all winter, and just finished a 25 miler in five and a half hours. So I guess what I'm looking for is what I should add to the running public running plan to ensure success in a 50-mile mountain race. I'm planning to start doing a morning and evening session one to two times per week in addition to the weekly long run, but wondering if that should happen the evening after a big swing of the hammer or would I be better served to do a double on the day after the big swing, i.e. two recovery runs in one day with one being 40 to 50 minutes, the other being one and one half hours. There's always themes. So funny how these themes develop. And and then he says, he just slaps me across the face, Ryan says, additionally, are there any specific workouts you'd recommend I try before race day to get me ready for the 50-mile stimulus? I know Bracken may have a few good ones in the hopper. Kirk Kirk ain't got no good ones in the hopper. The hopper. Kirk Kirk don't know shit about 50-mile training and workouts. It's just Bracken must have some good ones in the hopper. Ryan, we need to talk. But what your assumptions are here. We're both very capable, Ryan. <laughs> What's the longest distance I've ever run in my life? 31 miles. 32 miles. I think 31. Yeah. 32 maybe? Mm-hmm. 31 or 32? It's called 32. Yeah. What's the longest distance you've run? 37 miles for sure and then multiple 50Ks and some just for fun. Yeah. So you're the resident long distance runner here no i just thought it was funny i just thought it was like a slight it was unintended and i was like "Ooh, my ego hurts a little bit yeah i just think it's funny that you've run significantly longer than me okay here's my take if the race is flat it's time to prioritize running volume you need to be able to run and handle the running stride numbers and repetition needed to complete your race. 7K avert is what he says. 7K avert in this race, by the way. Right. So I'm just starting with that. Mm. However, the steeper the race gets, the less I care about running volume. And this is going to sound a little controversial. The less I even care about time on feet. And the more if I had to only put eggs in two baskets, I'd put it in vert, both up and down, and strengthening all of the groups that are needed to get through this race. Because if you've run a 50K, you can finish a 50 mile. You may not be able to race the whole time, but you physically can complete it. However, that goes out the window when you start climbing and descending. One too many descents means that you can no longer descend and you might not be able to climb anymore. 
And that can be built two ways, climbing and descending and in the gym. The byproduct of both of those are you're going to be more durable and you can run longer. But mountain ultras aren't about running as much as they are about climbing and descending. So that's where I would start. I'm not saying it's not important to hit volume, and it certainly is important to hit time on feet. But I would rather hit three-hour intense hill sessions than a four-and-a-half-hour long run. Absolutely Every day of the week, I would go for that. And I'd rather hit fantastic strength sessions than get an extra 10 miles of flat running in per week. Yeah, and he did say he's doing two strength sessions per week uh, in there as well. I skipped over some just to keep it as short as possible. But um, I agree with you. It's it, Your goal is not to get swept up by the uh, the caboose, right? The, you want to make the time cutoffs. Uh, obviously, that's probably your minimum goal. And then obviously performance comes after that. But when it comes to long events, it's going to have very little to do towards the end, most likely in your boat. If you're looking at not getting swept out the back, for example, your aerobic system is going to, you're not going to be using its full capability. What's going to happen is you're going to break down structurally the back half, and it's just going to be your body's ability to keep moving is going to be compromised and more compromised. And pretty soon, that 160 heart rate that you've been able to keep, you might not be able to keep it above 120 because you're so broken that you can't work hard enough to even use your aerobic capabilities, right? And so I'm I'm backing up what Bracken said is we need to make you durable, right? It, it's not going to – so time on feet does make you durable, of course. Like that is part of the process, but it is about resistance to impact more than anything, especially when you're descending like you are. And so – uh, there's obvious places for doubles in the long run and all those must absolutely be in your repertoire. Um, But it's like, how, what are the things that are going to help me stave off damage the longest? Like if your hips go on you and you can't climb anymore or your, your quads or your IT band is so shot going downhill that you have to go so gingerly that each step is painful, you're going to get swept for example. And so um, structurally we need to be, we need to be putting our focus there as much or more than the aerobic conditioning, especially in the mountains. Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely right. If your goal is to not get swept off the course, the only, I mean, that the, they set these time limits, especially in the mountains so that they're getting rid of people off the mountain who are standing still mm-hmm. or really, really struggling. If you can just keep putting one foot in front of the other up all the climbs and at least jog down the climbs, you most likely will reach the cutoffs in these type of ultras. That's not always true in some of the others, but in mountain ultras, it basically gets people off the mountain who eventually are going to get stuck on the mountain. Mm -hmm. And the precursor to getting stuck is to not moving in chunks. So that's what you have to fight against. And the difference between 50 miles a week and 70 or 35 and 50 won't make a difference in I can't put one foot in front of the other anymore. But the difference in how much vert have I done and how much have I bulletproofed my legs, that will matter. And there's two ways to get to that. You can run 80 to 100 miles a week. Do 10 to 15 hours of mountain running and just pour yourself all the way into that like Miguel Medina did when he won the Ure 100. 100 mile weeks, week after week after week. Or you can go in on all in on strength training and all in on specific hill reps. And Miguel also went in all in on all in on hills. But 180, 80 to 100 mile weeks can get you there, but they also can get you injured. 
it's really much less likely to be injured if you're doing that 35 to 50 miles a week and really doing smart strength training and hill work to bolster that. Either one can get you past the sag wagon, but one of them is inherently less risky. But I still would bump up probably. 35 miles a week would scare me for a 50 miler. Me too. Getting closer to 45 or 50 would give me a little bit more peace of mind. I'm going to answer bullet point directly now to his questions. And I agree with what you'd said there. Okay. Um, track time on feet and vert. Don't worry about mileage. Also track your descending as well as your climbing. I don't know if you're using a Nordic track trainer or not, but that does factor in like, oh, wow, I got 20,000 feet of gain this week. Great. You did it on your Nordic track and you didn't descend once. You're going to be so screwed. So vert descent and time on feet for sure. Before you double, my suggestion would be go from five to six days a week of running. You're currently running five. Your next step is six first. Okay. If you were my athlete, this is what I would have you be doing. From there, if you've proven that after a few weeks, that's still sustainable. In this situation, I would add a second shorter run onto your quality day on Tuesday or whatever day that is. Start there on the running public plan. Um, And he's asking about converting this from the running public plan, which is a piece I forget about. But we have three options on the running public training plan, which I believe you would be aware of. And it's like shorter option, longer option, and longest option. And what I would do is keep the spirit of the quality sessions the same. Just put them on the most real terrain to race days you possibly can. And then you're okay to extend out those weekend long run efforts. Like get the quality work that we're just like, let's say we have threshold intervals in your long run, or let's say we have get that stuff done as prescribed and then extend out your cool down with slower time on feet to duration of satisfaction. Maybe it's three hours on a long run or three and a half or whatever you're getting for, whatever it is. Um, that's where I would start. So doubling up after quality days and then hitting what we have as prescribed and then just extending out time on feet. Cause that's going to make durability after the quality sessions are done or the quality long run is over. Um, I think I hit most mm-hmm. of the bullet points he was looking to hit be hit there. I think I like it. Okay. I'm happy. It was a little preachy, but I think it was good. Yeah. Hopefully it helps. All right. Uh, Bethany Herka. Uh, happy birthday. Listening to yesterday's episode and got me thinking of something I've heard very mixed reviews on. And you may have already, you, you may already have done an episode on this. If so, please let me know. Uh, benefits of heart rate training versus RPE. The type A person that I'm lo- that I am loves the black and white of staying within a defined range of numbers, but the medical science part of me can appreciate the research supporting that, especially for women, so many factors can affect heart rate. So, are the numbers actually limiting your performance and potential? Super interested in this, and would love to hear both of your opinions. Have a great weekend celebrating. To me, heart rate training is really, really, really good for events that can be run solely off of heart rate training. For example, heart rate training is phenomenal for triathlon. It's really good at it, but it's being quickly replaced by wattage. But knowing your zones is really important for that. The more you're going to get into nonlinear events, if you're getting into the mountains, off trails, other things, the more heart rate's still great on some days, but you must have days where you practice the skill of RPE because RPE is a skill. You know, we have, I have three little kids and it is proven to me <laughs> by watching them that humans are incapable of accurately describing their discomfort. Mira will walk in who is five and say, my stomach really hurts. 
And I'll say, what does it feel like? She'll be like, it's a four. <laughs> like, okay, so you don't understand right now what that feels like. You have to be taught what that feels like. And I think the same thing happens with running. I'm really hurting today. Well, what is it one to 10? It is a nine. It's like, but is it really? Or is it more like a four? So we have to learn the RPE scale because your toughness is not taken into consequence or taken into account by the scale itself. You have to interpret it correctly through what your current glasses that you're wearing are. If you're a big wuss, the RPE scale is going to fail you and heart rate might be needed to keep you accountable. If you are the toughest SLB on the planet, you might be overreaching on the RPE scale without knowing it. And same thing goes with heart rate. There are days where as a female on certain, like depending on what stage of your cycle you're in or, or just really, um, yeah, mostly that what, whatever stage of your cycle you're in will affect your heart rate. And so you can't abide by that scale. RPE is necessary on that day. And what if you are in, let's say the third stage of your cycle on race day, you're feeling the worst possible, but you have to race. Can you trust your heart rate or do you ha- have you had to complete some real nasty quality workouts when you're in your third stage of your cycle in order to know how to appropriately react on that day? So I know this is a convoluted answer, but you really have to know yourself and you have to practice the skill of executing either one of those scales. Yeah, you have to know yourself, don't you? And you have to know your personal tendencies. The term decoupling gets thrown mm-hmm. around a good bit. It's like de- decoupling, like I felt like I was going easy. And then I looked at my heart rate and it was 155. Like I knew it was an RP of three. Like I was going easy, I swear. And then I looked at my heart rate and it told me I was in zone four. And you're like, that don't make sense. That's decoupling. The opposite can happen. I'm out running a threshold or what I think are hard, long intervals, and I'm going hard. I'm going at an eight, and I look down, and my heart rate's at 145, and I'm like, it should be way higher than that than for how hard I'm working. People who deal with decoupling, especially as the summer months get warmer and people start going out and running in heat, and they're like, I was running easy, and my heart rate just kept drifting and drifting and drifting. It comes back to knowing your body. It really comes back down. I'm going to repeat what you said, and I'm just like refining it slightly. It's like, if you know your tendency is to overcook on days, then yeah, you got to live and die by your heart rate. That has to be exactly your northern light, right? It has to guide you. But if you're also one who can't get yourself quite where you need to on quality days, you also need to look at your heart rate for those and be like, am I really working as hard as I think I am? But... At the same time, you could argue the opposite when RPE makes way more sense because it just works for you as an athlete. And yeah, the heat and humidity is up and I am working easy. My heart rate just doesn't reflect it. My quality day tomorrow went just fine or it's going to go just fine. None of this matters. It's about mental output for me. Basically, if I'm trying hard mentally, it sucks the life out of me for the next day. And if I'm not, who cares what physiologically I'm doing? I think that's a big factor in this. How much mental fortitude was today requiring for me and how much of that mental fortitude is now gone for tomorrow so if your heart rate drifts but you really felt like an easy effort was given the day before even though your metrics don't insinuate that so be it if it works for you but there is no one right answer so sorry bethany there's no one right answer let's muddy those waters it's like anything else that we've talked about on this if anyone has one flat system they're either that they're trying to sell you, 
they're either closed-minded or they're trying to make a buck off you. Because there really isn't a one-size-fits-all system. You have to be able to pick and choose and apply it to yourself. Anyone who will ever tell you this supplement is the one thing you need or this system is the best, is the only way to get in better shape or this is the only way to do this. Anyone who will ever tell you that doesn't understand it or they're making money off selling you that. And that's how heart rate training is and that's how RPE is. If you rely on only one, it's probably because someone tried to convince you that that's the only way to do it or the best way. And it's just not true because you'll always wind up in a situation where the other is more appropriate. And as such, you need enough experience with the other one to be able to utilize it correctly in that moment. So practice does make perfect or at least permanent. And so you have to use those things. RPE scale is not easy for everyone to implement. Mm -mm. Bethany, it's a great question. It's so great that there's not one answer. That's the problem. Um, we have two questions left and we're just going to breeze through these, right? We're just going to nail them in the next five minutes and be done. Cause I know we both got stuff we got to get to. So what? I don't even believe it anymore when we say these things. Well, we have to. So, and I think we can do it. And I know it's usually me. I just love getting off and spinning the wheels on these things. All right. Brent milks T-Rexes says, <laughs> uh, it's not his name. Brett milks. And then in parentheses, it says T-Rex. He dresses up as a T-Rex at uh, Spartan races and runs in a T-Rex costume. There you go. But you get it. And I don't think T-Rexes have milk. I got a topic for you guys. You can do it in a Q&A or a main episode, or if you're able to answer it, it's more. I am curious on how you can be a higher-end running athlete and then all of a sudden jump into a functional fitness and still do amazing as a first-timer. Is it more like if you're a pro athlete, you could pretty much adapt to any type of competition environment? Uh, let's, let's leave it at that. He's saying, how do these high-end guys just, they're good at everything? Like, is that how it works? If you're good, you're good. Uh, no, it, but it's just like what we were talking about with Tom Simeon's question about all my machine work. Will it make me a good runner? No, until it does. Like your building blocks are your building blocks. In theory, if you can be a great swimmer, you could be a pretty darn good biker or runner and vice versa. The skill is what separates it and your physiological makeup. You may have a predilection towards one thing or the other, but with a, what a lot of these people do is they spend just enough time doing functional strength work or weight room work or jumping into certain types of workouts that when they go and try something, they have some legs to stand on. If you took just a phenomenal pro runner and put him into one of these, no, he could not do it. But if you gave him once a week, a functional strength workout, he'd probably get pretty good at it. And that's what you're seeing with these people. Your, your sample size that you're looking at is probably the hybrid and OCR sport. And those are the people that move over well because they already like doing some of these things in training. Uh, that's what you're seeing is people with already some skill set in place that them allow, then allows them to use their massive engines that they've built up. Yeah. And you're, you know, for better or worse, you're probably not seeing them reaching their true potential and what you're even witnessing, right? They're just, their engine right. is so good that they can be pretty good at whatever they choose to dive into with just a little bit of skill work beforehand. See if it seems to be like a new endeavor for that athlete, but most likely you're not seeing the tip of their spear or their iceberg whatsoever. You're seeing somewhere in the middle, like, okay, there's potential. So it's like the rich get richer in that regard. And, 
um, it still does come down to like, if you don't have a great engine, you don't have a great cardio system or aerobic capabilities, like your governor is on pretty low and it, you're probably not going to be able to do that yourself. But because there's such a, a superior athlete on that front, exactly right. It just takes a little skill work to get them in the game at least. Um, but I'm telling you, you're probably not seeing, you're probably not seeing what they're capable of, but you're seeing glim- glimpses of it. Um, they could be even better, which is scary than what you're probably seeing. Really brief example, Ryland Schottig blows everyone away when he comes to deck of it, does a really good high rocks and people are like, how does he do all these things? Well, if you ever notice Rylan in a gym trains like a crossfitter and a high rocks athlete, he got into functional fitness really big being a firefighter and in the gym he's at, he just does those things a lot. He doesn't spend as much time weight training as other people, but he has enough of these Metcon style work in his background that he can transfer really well. And on the other side of the spectrum, you see like a Lindsay or a Nicole in Spartan games or in these, their first DECA do really pretty well. Nicole just did pretty darn well. And it's not because she's training for DECA at all, but she's done enough pull-ups and rock climbing and dragging heavy things and getting ready for the demands of OCR that she has some generalized functional fitness that she can apply her massive engine to. Like she didn't have good row form, but she was rowing fast for a while until she fatigued. She didn't know a ton about skiing, but she could pull it off because she's done enough with her upper body that her engine could spin a little bit. So you're seeing these people just give a glimpse of what they could do. And they're also probably doing a little more specificity than you would expect because the demands of their previous sport made them dabble in it a little bit. Yep exactly right but it does come all back to engine like he is alluding to like if you're capable you're capable yeah and and it is true so it does still come down to your output ability all right we're moving on last one natasha manzel one of my athletes over in the uk she's uh yeah she's been on our podcast as a guest we had a great conversation with her year back or two um yes we did her husband dan and her son riley this is what this is referred to uh dan mentioned cadence to riley today on our fun run, and it got me curious as to mine. No joke, I am consistently, and I mean consistently, 181 to 183 average, no matter the pace, terrain, up, down, treadmill versus road versus trail, hard or easy, 181 to 183 without fail. I don't know why I expected the cadence to go up on flat and quick, but nope, miss metronome here. Is that something that could unlock pace, or is it a good thing to be consistent no matter pace, terrain? I have no idea if I should vary depending. Maybe one for a Q&A. I'd say congratulations. You're blessed. Correct. Exactly. I'd <laughs> yeah. say piss off, Natasha. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. Get out of here. I think it also speaks to why she's able to adapt well to distances, despite not always having had the background in training that some other people did, is because if you can continually turn your feet over, you don't drop off when distances change. Yep. That's a real big skill set to have. People who change their cadence, like myself, drastically depending on paces, you're not used to the turnover of it. And when you run out of juice, you also run out of cadence. You don't want to run out of both in the same competition, and yet I do all the time. And so you generally have to worry about only running out of juice. Your cadence is going to be there. I can't run 183 at 10-minute pace. Congratulations. That's a skill set. Use it. Yeah. And do you think coincidentally enough, Natasha... Touch wood, as they say over there across the pond, never gets injured. Do you think there's a coincidence there, Bracken, to cadence, her cadence being high and the fact that she plants well under her own center of mass uh, and stays healthy pretty much always? 
Um, it's a very efficient way to run if you're not overstriding. If you're striding at around 180, you're most likely not overstriding. means you're not causing a braking effect, meaning you're not causing unwanted damage to your body by running inefficiently. And so in an ideal world, our cadence doesn't get faster or slower depending on how fast we're running. Our stride just gets longer or shorter based on our pacing. That's in an ideal world that we most don't fit into. I don't either. I run a slower cadence at slower paces and a faster cadence at faster. Um, so just to answer your question directly, Natasha, you are not leaving anything on the table. I wouldn't put any more thought into it. I would just be thankful that your body naturally uh, knows what how to run efficiently for itself. Um, I wouldn't spend any more mental energy on it at all. No. That's it. Well, we finished my question queue with something we couldn't answer, and we finished yours with something that makes me feel like poop about my own run. <laughs> great. Yeah, nice. Uh, Thanks, Natasha. Yeah, she's uh she's been crushing the uh the long trail racing scene too. She got a big one this weekend. She's gonna crush. Oh, um, all right, we did it. I truly believe yeah. that one of the greatest things you can bring to long racing is bulletproof cadence. I agree with that. It's such a weapon to have. But their wheels are still turning over, right? Like you look, and they're still turning over. They're still turning over. It's like they're doing all right. They're still turning over. That's what matters, yeah. Yeah, and taking less damage. 100%. All right, well, that's it. We got to roll? We do have to roll. Good job, man. Way to go. Thanks for the questions, guys. Do you feel a good weight off your shoulder getting all these good questions out of the queue? I feel I feel light as a feather, man. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Yeah, I played that game as a kid. Things get weird when you played that one. Should we wrap? I thought you were going to say, I played that game recently. No, not recently. <laughs> I don't know if you were doing those kind of games at your birthday last weekend. You guys want to do some trust falls? <laughs> it's just the kind of game where like half the people that came to my birthday party was projectile vomiting two days later. Whatever that kind of game is. It was like Russian roulette with if you're going to get the stomach yeah. flu or not. That's the game we played. Except you don't know how well you did at it until about Monday morning at 2 a.m. It's just really interesting how that worked. You know how to party. I really do. All right. See you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.